Right, our Bible reading today is from James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18. Two kinds of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Last week we went through James chapter 3. And that chapter ends with these words. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And my encouragement was to become peacemakers, not peacekeepers. See, keeping the peace is just about compromising to a point where both sides seem to be just as unhappy as each other and so give up fighting to keep the peace. This is the kind of stuff we do as kids. You know, when our parents step in and make us compromise to keep the peace. But James says that we harvest righteousness as people who make peace being right before God and doing right before God is accomplished by being people who make peace. And so what does it look like to make peace? Well, I believe that James tells us in chapter 4. It's really good sometimes, you know, when you can follow an author's thoughts process through and they raise these issues and then all of a sudden, here's examples of those issues. Wonderful. So we're going to be in chapter 4 today. Um, from verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So what causes fights? What causes quarrels? No, not another one. Oh, I was really hoping there'd be a second one there. Well, what causes peace to vanish? Selfishness. Our passions at war within us. We want something and so we fight to get it. We see what someone else has and we want that for ourselves and so we fight. In contrast to those who make peace, fights are caused by self-centred desires to place ourselves and our thoughts and our priorities and our desires at the centre. Our self-centred desires, they cause us to make war against others in the church. James here uses quite violent language for this description. Some commentators I read even think that James's description here should be taken literally of people killing each other over these issues that have arisen within the church. But I guess it's probably best for us to, to view this as a metaphor 
for the devastating effect of unrestrained hostility. See, people desire things that lead to terrible wars and infighting in the church. Have you seen this play out within your time in the church? Maybe it's been a battle over where a particular piece of furniture should go. Or maybe it's been a battle over what songs we should be singing. Maybe it's a battle over how much prayer we do in a service or otherwise or or how much of the Bible we read. You know, we, we only read two verses today. We should read six, you know. Maybe it's over how the seats are set out or how loud it is or how much rain noise is on the roof or whether we should be spending money on this thing or spending money on that thing and we, we, we can pick anything, any number of reasons to cause a fight really, can't we? There are so many things we could grab onto and fight for our own preference, our own selfish desires. We could grab onto to things like, like even who does a certain thing or who doesn't do something. When really what James is telling us here is that our personal preferences, our own desires, we need to bring them under the control of Christ and we need to instead instill motivations that bring glory to God and that honour Jesus, that are not selfish, that are not out of earthly passions and are not this unbridled attempt to have things done my way. Now, if you're like me, You've prayed prayers that have not been answered. Who here has prayed a prayer that has not been answered? If you don't put your hand up, you're lying. Um, We ask for things that we want to benefit us instead of asking for what lines up with God's desires, not necessarily our own. And, And there's no wonder that those prayers aren't answered. And if we're truly honest, we've probably even prayed a prayer or two like this. God... Give that person what they deserve with the obvious desire of them receiving judgment and cursing rather than blessing. Amen? Yep. We ask wrongly at times. See, not all prayers are pleasing to God. The ones he loves hearing though are those that are consistent with his will and his character as revealed in Scripture that reflect his heart. Of course he wants to grant those. See, rather than seeking to honour God and advance his kingdom purposes, such prayers at times can become these things that are based in selfishness and they seek to only gratify our self-centred desires and passions. And so we we pray for our own pleasure. Now James in this passage isn't actually saying that all pleasure is wrong. He's saying that only pleasure that does not have the glory of God as its goal that kind of pleasure will not be of great concern to God and so really wouldn't be really high on his, his, his priority list of answering prayers and, and activity in, in the world. So, you know, the old comment of, you know, God, please give me a car park undercover today, you know, he might not grant that one. It might not be high up in his priorities because what's at the base of that? A selfishness not to get wet? There's so many different prayers that we pray that we ask wrongly, as James puts it. Verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made 
to dwell in us. James speaks here like you would have heard from an Old Testament prophet, you know, recalling language that was often used by the prophets to describe Israel's unfaithfulness to God. See, such people, uh, as James addresses here, have chosen friendship with the world by imitating worldly ways of thinking and worldly activities and in so doing have made themselves an enemy of God. I want us to understand this, this concept here. It will always be impossible to satisfy the expectations of unbelievers whose hearts are set on this world and at the same time please God. That'll be a really hard thing to do, to satisfy the expectations of unbelievers whose hearts are set on this world and please God. Very difficult thing to do because they're at war with each other. And I think that to fully understand that concept, that we're not here to keep people in our world happy, we're here to please God, we actually need to understand the concept of holiness. And to fully understand what James is teaching here, I'm going to do a little bit of explanation of of holiness. Because holiness is often misunderstood. It is wrapped up in all this imagery of perfection, of white robes and of beams of light. It's wrapped up in the expectation of perfection. But what holy really means is set apart. And more explicitly, set apart unto God. And so why could this building here be called holy? I mean, it was a social club. But why could it now be called holy? Because it has been set apart unto God. It has been designated that the purpose of this building is to bring glory to God and serve his people. So yeah, we can call this place holy. But did you know that at the same time, that also applies to you? You are holy. For those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour, we have set ourselves apart from the world and we have given our lives over to God. Our life has been set apart unto God. That's what holy means. We have been dedicated or consecrated to God. When we say, Lord Jesus, I want you as Lord of my life, what is that? That's a prayer of dedication and consecration. And so when we reflect the world around us with our passions and desires, we're not reflecting our holiness or God's desires for us. And in a way, it's a bit like we're cheating on God. An example would be, it's like saying your wedding vows to your wife, but only going to see her once a week, and the rest of the time doing exactly what you want, occasionally speaking to her on the phone for a minute or two a day, and then just choosing to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want. It's almost sometimes how we treat God. A little bit here, a little bit there. But you know, God is is a jealous God. He desires our devotion. And I reckon there's been times in all of our lives where we've sort of been poor at reflecting his holiness in our lives. We've struggled. We have rocked up on Sundays, but then really the rest of the time of the week, well, maybe there's been times where we've not done great, if we're honest. That's probably something familiar for most of us. But you know what? There is hope, but he gives more grace. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Did you hear that? He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. 
that your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. God gives us grace. It is impossible to outsin the grace of God. God gives us the opportunity to humble ourselves before him, to realign our lives for his glory, to submit ourselves to his rule and reign, to resist the temptations that the devil places before us and instead choose holiness, to draw near to God rather than push him away, to cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to mourn and weep over our sin rather than laugh with glee over our insubordination. Look at the promises contained here in this passage. I could preach a whole message on each one. We, we, we got the time. God gives grace to the humble. What a wonderful promise that is. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. What a key to victory there. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. He doesn't say he might. He will draw near to you. If we humble ourselves before God, he will exalt us. You know what? This is really good, great freedom here because it means that we don't need to exalt ourselves. We don't need to fight for, for ourselves. We don't need to promote ourselves. We don't need to work at, 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 at lifting up ourselves because it says here, if we humbly come before God, he will do that for us. We can waste so much time and energy fighting for ourselves, fighting for our own preferences, fighting to exalt ourselves. Yet God tells us here that if we humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us. Surely it would be better to fight for humility, to fight for freedom from the devil, to fight for the hope that is found in the gospel rather than fighting for ourselves or fighting for the things that the world values rather than what God values. We shouldn't be fighting or quarrelling with each other. We should be spurring each other on towards love and good deeds and towards humility before God. And so, like verses 11 and 12 commend, we should fight to speak well of our brothers and sisters instead of speaking against them or judging them. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbour? Oh, ah, oh, why is this in the Bible? Oh, If we judge others, then we are taking the place of God. We are making ourselves out to be like God. And the last time I checked, that was called idolatry. And so also following on from last week's teaching about using godly wisdom in how we speak, James reiterates this message again with how our words can pass judgment on others. But here he really flips the judgment around and says that when we judge others, really, we're bringing judgment on ourselves. Like it says in Romans 2.1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. I believe that's called hypocrisy. James then starts turning his attention towards situations that can bring fighting and quarrelling and he begins to focus on money and wealth and specifically how we get it wrong. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and all that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I once met a preacher who had previously been a cattle farmer. Every message he preached seemed to be about his boasts from his previous farming escapades. See, because at one point in time, he was what you would definitely call a rich farmer. He was worth over $2 million and then lost it all. And this really affected him greatly because his illustrations, just about on any single thing he preached on every single week, were about somehow he found a way to sneak this in to mention that it was worth $2 million but lost it all and remained faithful to God. Like he'd made it. Like he was a success in the eyes of the world. Like he had everything you could ever ask for and then lost it all but never lost the Lord. Now, it's, it's a good illustration. It, it wears on you after you hear it more than three times. But, but what the world thinks is success, I think God scoffs at. He laughs. He giggles. I reckon he's... he's like, <laughs> Look at that. I just reckon that's God, you know. What the world thinks is success is lots of money, plenty of toys, massive house, exotic holidays, fancy food, fancy wine and retiring early to live a life of leisure. But what God says about our world and how it evaluates its success, it's all vapour. It's a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes just like our very life. But the key to this passage is this, if the Lord wills. What James is referring to by the Lord here is he's referring to Yahweh as creator who sustains the universe and whose will controls all that happens. Every business decision must be based on submission to God's will. Every decision we make about education must be based on submission to God's will. Every plan we make every choice we make, every life decision, we should be basing this on submission to God's will. Every political decision we make, every cause that we support, every investment that we make, we should base this on submission to God's will. Now you are more than aware, unless you've really stuck that head in the sand, that we've been making plans about future ministry activities of our church. All of these have been based upon Submission to God's will. And when it's all unpacked and you break it down, it seems like we're going to be doing a lot of things over the next three years, if it's God's will. If you haven't seen the strategic plan yet, then everyone will get a copy on Vision Sunday in just two weeks' time. And if you want to see a working version of that, I have some of those as well today. Just see me after the service. Happy to hand them out. See, there are many things that we believe we are being called to do practical ways to bring the hope of the gospel to the northeast and when you look at the list of things it it might seem very daunting to to many of us now but can i say this right up front no one person has to do it all if it's the lord's will it will happen in his time and according to his plans and purposes we are family we all work together and as a whole we can accomplish way more than we could each individually. 
And our strategic plan is a dynamic document. Not in the way it looks, because <laughs> really it doesn't look very dynamic at all. Pretty boring. Um, but it's dynamic in the sense that it can change and, and probably will change over time. It's not all set in stone. Some things might be done quicker than planned. Some things might be deferred until the next year or a time later. And no person is expe- is expected to do or be involved in everything or to attend everything or to be on every team or ministry. And so I didn't want there to be this dread or, or sense of, you know, we're making all these plans, I've got to do everything. No, no, no. We do what the Lord wills. These plans we hold to him and we say, if the Lord wills, let it be. We believe that we've taken this journey and have been responsive to his guidance and his leading to get to this point and we continue that frame of mind too so what do we need to do we've looked at a few things this morning about we don't we don't need to fight we don't need to fight each other but we do need to fight for hope when i look around at the world and i i i chose this image of the seed thing for a reason because what is a seed a plant produces a seed for what purpose in the hope that it will reproduce itself. It seems like all of creation is filled with hope because it's hope for the next generation. Every animal, every plant, every weed, the whole existence is based on hope that they will reproduce, that they will have an influence that carries beyond their own existence. Why is that? Because it reflects a God who is a God of hope, who wants to see the next generation's reached for the gospel. It reflects his nature as a creative God. So what we need to do, we need to fight for hope. We need to put energy and action behind fighting for the things that matter. I'm not sure about you, but I love watching nature documentaries. And as much as David Attenborough has got so many things wrong, he does great documentaries, if he can put up with all the other stuff. But when you look at these these different plants and and particularly how they produce a seed their entire life force is moves towards this one moment where they produce this flower that has to be pollinated a a certain time by a certain insect or animal or bird you know that only comes at a certain period of time and and it's like everything needs to be lined up so perfectly for 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 it all to go to, to actually happen and what does god do he provides for everything and then that that whole entire existence and life leading to this one point of reproduction occurs and then it dies. The, the whole fight of that entire plant was about reproducing. What are we trying to fight to reproduce? Disciples of Christ. We need to put our energy in action towards fighting for things like that that actually matter, towards fighting for our brothers and sisters in Christ, fighting for their ability to live a life that brings glory to God. We need to fight for hope in our community. We need to fight for hope in our family. We need to fight for sharing the freedom that is found in the gospel. We don't need to fight each other. We need to fight for each other and fight for hope. See, our plans for the future in God's hands and what he wills will be accomplished. So let's make sure that we align our will with the Lord's and make sure that we fight the real battles that need to be won and continue in the victory and hope of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have been blessed abundantly. Lord, we thank you that we have the blessing of hope all wrapped up in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that for each of us we would 
expend our energy fighting for things that really matter, fighting for our brothers and sisters in Christ, fighting for the hope of the gospel to be proclaimed in our region, fighting for mercy, fighting for grace, fighting for the chance to share the freedom that is found in the gospel. Lord, may we give up fighting fights out of selfish ambition and instead fight for the things that matter to you, that matter to your heart, that will change lives for your glory. Lord, may we lay down things within us that we have taken up, but Lord, really in the scheme of things are just selfish ambitions. May we people who may we be people who make peace because we fight for you, your glory, your grace, rather than our own exaltation. May we fight to humble ourselves before you and bring glory to you and hope. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.